0: Went into it a little bit in the fall, so I figured since it's been a while, we should probably try to uh, do a little recap. But what I know about Genesis is that it has so many stories that are rich into it, or in it that it can bring a lot to mind. So I'll start off with a question: When you think of the book of Genesis, what is it that comes to mind? Is it a story? Is it an idea? You know, is it creation, or you know, like Adam and Eve, or like the snake, the fruit? You know, was it an apple? Was it a pear? I don't know. Must have been good. Was it Abraham and Isaac, maybe? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. The flood? There's so many things that come out of this book. And what I realize, what I know, is that Genesis, like if you think about the book of Genesis, it is literally one of the most influential books ever written, all time. Because this, the ideas in this book the people that we meet, and even the places, all of that has influenced human history for literally thousands of years. So if you're not aware of the book of Genesis, when it was written, we're talking 1500 BC, right? So 1500, 3,500 years ago is when this was written. So for thousands of years, this has been influencing human history. So Christians and non-Christians, religious and non-religious people have been mining this book trying to figure out what exactly it is saying. And so with that comes a lot of maybe ideas or, you know, if you heard these stories when you were little, like if you went to like VBS or if you, you know, had like Bible books when you were little, a lot of these things almost take on like a fairy tale like atmosphere, right? Because we just learned them when we were kids and we see them as just stories. We see them as just like trivia and we forget that they're telling us something really important that can actually impact your life today like really, really impact the way that you live and the way that you look at the world. And no matter where you're coming from, I think that we can take something out of this. So what we're going to do today then is just try to say, well, where have we been? Because we're going to be in Genesis 12, when we pick back up in Genesis. But I want you to know why we need Genesis 12. Like Abraham, or Abram at the time, shows up. And so many of you may know the story of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Isaac. Like, well, why do they even come into the picture? Well, that's Genesis 1 through 11. And in Genesis 1-11, that's a unit. Like, and we know that because of the way it was written. And we shouldn't write off the ancients, because a lot of times we can look at people that are like, living way back then, and like, oh, they're just a bunch of dummies. They didn't have iPhones like we do, right? They don't know anything. And it's like, they're brilliant people, right? They were figuring out math back then, right? They were, doing, they were like, they're coming up with laws that govern society back then. They were building pyramids. They were doing unbelievable things all over the globe back then. So we shouldn't just write them off as if they didn't know anything. And Moses is credited with writing Genesis, and when he does that, he does it in a very intentional way. He uses Genesis 1-11 through to set us up for Genesis 12, to understand the need for salvation and redemption. Like, he shows the story of humanity and says, and this is how it all fits in. And so we covered that all last summer and into the fall, and some of the big ideas that came out of that, there's like five that we see that come out of that. One, this is really important for, I think, every single person, is that we see the account of creation, yes, but we also see the value and purpose of human life. I know a lot of people today that just don't feel like they have any value. They feel like they've been devalued by other people, right? And in their own minds, they kind of stay stuck there, right? Or they don't feel like they have any purpose, or they feel like their life doesn't matter. One of the beautiful things that comes out of these early chapters in Genesis is that yes, in fact, you do have value, you do have purpose. Your life has meaning because you're made in the image of God. So we see that come out of these early chapters. But we also see sin and its consequences come out of these early chapters. And that's like a that's a tough one to deal with, the consequences of sin and the fallout for that kind of stuff. We see the early story of the human story, right? We see how humanity like, spread out and the problems they had, and the issues that they dealt with, their relationship with God, and how it was tricky. But then importantly, out of this book, these early chapters, we see this theological groundwork for understanding humanity's relationship with God. Why do I need God? What's my relationship with Him supposed to look like? All that starts right here in Genesis. What is it supposed to be like? If you want to know what it means to be in a relationship with God, Genesis is a great place to start. If you're like trying to understand Him and what He's like, Genesis is a great place to start. Does He want relationship with me? Genesis is a great place to start. And then lastly, This sets the stage for, again, that overarching narrative of God's plan of salvation, right? The brokenness that we see in Genesis, the sloppiness of people, the harm caused by people. And the thing I love about Genesis is that you see God repeatedly working with stupid people. And sometimes in your life, you're going to remember, you're going to realize that you're stupid people sometimes. And it's an awesome encouragement to know that God will continue to work with you. You may have, as you saw earlier, consequences. But what I love about Genesis and what it reveals about God is that he's going to just passionately pursue us, even in the mistakes that we make, even as we run from him sometimes. That may come with consequences, but he is going to pursue us. He is going to continue to work, and work not only through us, but just in us. And I love that, But he's not going to give up on us. And that's what we see with the human story, is that God repeatedly just saying, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to keep my promise. And we're going to see what that promise is this morning. But it has, I think, a place to land in your life. Because these things that we're going to talk about, they don't just, like, govern the biblical narrative. They're for you today. They're for you today. And I don't want us to just see these as stories, right? It's trivia. It's, like, things like that. It's, like, God said this stuff for you today in 2024, right? And so the first part of this, part one, was where it all began. Genesis 1 through 3 is an intense section of Scripture, and in that section, we're introduced to God in grand fashion. Because these are the first words that are going to come out of the, well, off the pen, I should say, of Moses. Because he's going to paint a picture now of who is going to be talked about in this whole book. And then, by extension, the whole Bible. And so the question that I asked you to wrestle with, with these three chapters, is what is God telling us about himself in the creation account? We can get caught up in just thinking about, again, those details, like, oh, the days and what he made on each day and, like, the serpent and, like, all that stuff in the first three chapters. But realistically, we should be thinking that that God said this stuff because it says something about him. So don't get lost in the weeds about the details of Genesis. This study of Genesis that we're doing is a thematic study of Genesis so that we can understand how these pieces fit together. I talk to people almost every Sunday, and they just don't know how it all fits together. It's hard to understand there's 66 books and it's like how does all this stuff fit together so that's why we're doing genesis in a thematic way i did the gospel of john the same way how does all this fit together and let's study from that perspective and so that's what we're doing with genesis is trying to paint that bigger picture right so for instance how does this stuff fit together like how should we think about this these things and what they actually say about god the very first thing we hit when we were introduced uh back last summer to genesis was this days of creation, confusion, and controversy. So people, again, the reason I'm doing this is to catch us all back up to speed on what we talked about, or if you weren't here, to, you know, know what we talked about, is this this is something that for a lot of people they struggle with. What exactly are these days talking about? Are they literal? Are they figurative? Are they poetic? Do they have any bearing on reality at all? Like, what should we learn from these things? And so you can get, again, you can get caught in the weeds of what exactly Genesis one is saying, or you can step back and say, all right, so I don't know specifically exactly what's being said. What is it saying about God? Why would God create like put this together in chapter one? It's like his introduction. So maybe there's something more important than just the details. So here's what we did when we covered all this. We did a, 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 a historical survey. What did brilliant Christians across history think about this stuff? So within a hundred years of Jesus, some people thought, a lot of people actually thought that creation happened in an instant. And that the seven days of creation, or more specifically, the six days of creation, were just like a poetic picture of God letting us know this is what I did. But it all happened in an instant. That was a big view. Another one, of course, was the 24-hour days. And another one still was that the days equaled long eras. Because it didn't make sense to people, even then. Like, well, how did he do all that stuff in just 24 hours? Like, and so there was a lot of confusion and a lot of discussion and a lot of debate within 100 years of Jesus. So this is early Christianity. They didn't know. They wrestled with it. So, as Christianity grew and it spread and it aged, what were people thinking about it? There's a guy, St. Augustine, he lived in the 400s, and he had this to say about the days of creation. This is one of the most prolific writers of all Christianity and probably one of the most brilliant thinkers in Christianity and history. And he said, as for these days of creation, it's difficult, perhaps impossible, to think, let alone explain in words, what they mean. So... If reading between the lines there, he's like, you know, it's hard to parse out exactly what's being said. So then the alternative is, what is this saying about God? How is this introducing you more intimately to the Creator? And what does it say about him, his care, his character? So, flash forward to the uh, 1500s. Then you have John Calvin, who started Calvinism and started the Reformation, right? He said the Holy Spirit had no intention to teach astronomy. That's not what it's for. And there was a a contemporary of his. You may know him. He was labeled as a heretic because back then people thought that the earth was stable and everything else rotated around the earth. Right? Because there's some scriptures that sound like that. That the earth is immovable. It's on foundations. And then this guy comes along and he's like, I don't think that's true. He said, I think we're misunderstanding what that verse is actually saying. And he started to make some discoveries and figured out, oh wait, the sun is actually sitting in the middle and we're flying around it. And he labeled it the heliocentric model for how the solar system works. And his name, of course, was Galileo. And he said, he's credited with saying, the Bible shows the way to go to heaven, not the way the heavens go. Right? Galileo had an understanding that, okay, maybe we're just misinterpreting what that said. And maybe there's a bigger meaning going on there. Maybe it's really to focus in on how do we go to heaven? How do we have a relationship with God? What does it reveal about our Creator not specifically as a textbook that's scientifically telling us how things work, right? And so this is how Christians throughout history have wrestled with this. And then most recently, a guy named John Lennox. This guy is a brilliant philosopher and mathematician, like Harvard-type, you know, actually he's the Oxford and Cambridge kind of a guy. And if you like thinking up in the clouds about big issues and, like, in really philosophical things, John Lennox is your guy, and, this is, and he's still alive. And this is what he had to say. It is one thing to wrestle with the meaning of the days of Genesis. It's another to understand, apply, and live the whole message of Genesis. So his understanding is a brilliant philosopher, a brilliant Christian, a brilliant mathematician. He's like, look, it's cool to wrestle with the meaning, but at the end of the day, it's another thing altogether to say, okay, I do understand and apply and live the message of Genesis. Right? Let's not bicker and get lost in the weeds about the meaning of these specific days, but what is it telling? What message is it giving? And then he ends with this. If we aren't doing a ladder, living this stuff out, I'm not sure that the former is going to profit us much. John Lennox. So understanding the meaning of all of this stuff, that's where we started this series because I wanted to introduce you to God. Not details, not trivia. I wanted to introduce you to the God that is being spoken of in this stuff. And so the very first verse of the Bible we read earlier Genesis 1:1 even if people aren't Christians they're pretty familiar with that. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth right that's the first words that's one of the most famous phrases that comes out of the book of Genesis. So what is he telling us? Well I think one of the big things that come out of this is that the focus of the creation account is not creation it's the creator. So if you can wrap your mind around that man that's going to bring a lot more wonder and a lot more awe and a lot more appreciation for what's being said in this very famous book. So I want to give you an example of what I mean by paying attention to what's actually being said. So in Genesis 1-1, we have in English, in the beginning, God created. So that's how it reads in English. Now in Hebrew, it's going to be a little bit different. So the Genesis Genesis was written in Hebrew. So in the beginning is the Hebrew word, Bereshit. And God is Elohim, which is plural. And then created is bara. So in Hebrew, what it was written, in, the words are going to be a little bit different. It's going to the order. I mean, is going to be bereshit, bara, Elohim. So let's take that for a ride together. Go ahead and learn some uh, learning some uh, Hebrew this morning. All right, ready? Bereshit, bara, Elohim. Right? You got to get yeah. You got to get that part. That's key. Right? You got him, Right. So what that is saying? What does that actually mean if we break that down and look at that? What's saying in the beginning? i.e. when there was nothing, right? Because we know matter on earth, everything in the universe has to have a beginning. So at that point, God already existed. Like, that's the opening salvo of the Bible, and I can't even wrap my mind around that. Like, what does that even mean that there was nothing but there was God? I don't know, right? But in fact, like I understand it kind of logically. Well, there, was, there had to be a point when there was nothing, and God saying, and there I was. God introducing himself as Elohim instead of just El. He's introducing himself in a plural, which, of course, echoes into the New Testament, right? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said to baptize them. So there's these, like, right in the very first opening verses of the Bible, in the beginning, there was this all-powerful God who was there, this trinity, even, you would say, later on, and created the heavens and the earth, and created in the Old Testament, whenever bara is used, it's only used of God. Because you and I can make stuff. You and I could build stuff. But we're always doing that with things that already exist. Like, they're trying to figure out right now. I think over in Switzerland is where that lab is. They're trying to figure out the Big Bang, right? And they're just shooting little protons around that thing. And it's like, and they're trying to figure that out. And they're all excited about the cool stuff that they're doing. But at the end of the day, they're taking material that already exists. The hard part is when there's absolutely nothing, and then you just speak it into existence. So again, if you really slow down and think about what's being said here, this is really an, like an unbelievable introduction to this God, that there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was everything, and it was all done by Elohim. So this is our introduction to him. Now, again, to bring us back to that point, the focus of the creation account is in creation. It's the creator. And if you read Genesis 1 and 2 and even 3 in that context, it's going to set you up to really be able to understand the book of Genesis. Like, this is revealing something about God. Because everything that happens in there, in Genesis 1 especially, is saying something cool. So, for example, have you ever noticed, if you're familiar with the days of creation, each day carries with it something, right? Day one's light, and you have all this kind of stuff. But it's not sunlight, but it's light. And so there's all this, like, you have to really think about what you're reading. And then there's this mystery. Day three is vegetation, now, the problem with vegetation, like plants and stuff, being on day three is the sun and the moon and the stars and stuff, they don't come out until day four. So, regardless, if you've got a 24 hour day period of mine in mind or you've got an infinite period of time, why in the world would vegetation be first and then the sun? Like, the ancients weren't dumb. They lived off the land. They knew just as well as us that the sun was needed to grow plants. They could go into a cave just like us and be like, oh, nothing grows here. They know what happens when you bring plants inside and they're in the dark and they just wilt. Like, they, they got that, right? They're not dummies. So for Moses to write this down and say there was vegetation first and with no sun and then the sun on the next day, what would his understanding have been? What was God saying to him in that context? Well, we see that as it goes across the Old Testament. And as it gets to the New Testament, in John chapter 1, it says, Jesus Christ, who has introduced as God, is the light and life, of the world. And so it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, the very last chapter of the Bible mirrors the very first chapter of the Bible. It's actually very interesting, the harmony there. So in the very first chapter, again, these are written 1,500 years apart, it's like God is trying to tell us, like, look, I don't need the Son to sustain life. That's who I am. I sustain life without it. He's saying something very intentional with that days of creation, because in the very last two chapters, actually, of the Bible, God just brings it back up again. He says, there's not going to be any sun. There's not going to be any moon in the end. It's like, well, what does that even mean? And he just says, I'll be here. I'll sustain life because that's who I am. And so if you look at the context like that, that is given in the picture, the framework that is given, we just had this all-powerful powerful creator God that sustains life, that wants goodness for us, that he himself wants to give us this light and this life. And that's what Jesus Christ was about. That was his message. And so understanding these things, again, it's like, okay, what what is it saying? If you're reading the days in that light, man, that that comes across way different. It hits way different. So that was like the the days of creation. And then a big thing we got into in chapter 2 was this imago day idea. Now, the imago day is the image of God. That's a Latin phrase that got to be used kind of during the Renaissance period, maybe a little bit later, maybe a little bit earlier. But it started to come out as this ideal for Christians, So because we are all made in the image of God, that affects how we treat people. It's the whole reason Jesus said, pray for your enemies. So how many of you people, don't raise your hand, but how many people have somebody that they just hate in their lives? Like you don't want to admit it, and you wouldn't say it in church certainly, right? But you just have somebody you can't stand. You just just hate that person. And you don't want him to die, but you certainly want bad things to happen to him. Right? It's like sometimes, man, our hearts can go ugly places. And that's, read the book of Psalms. You'll see lots of that in the book of Psalms. Right? But the Imago Dei affects how we approach that. I remember hearing early on in my life, if you have somebody that you hate, start praying for them regularly. And I was like, well, I guess it's supposed to. And he's like, no, no, no. He said, have you ever tried to hate somebody that you pray for every single day? And i was like, well, that's fair. That's fair. That's why Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Why? Imago Dei. It should be foundational, it radically changes the way that we view people and the, the hurt that we hold on to and the hate that we harbor in our hearts. So following Christ is not easy. That's not an easy thing to do, but that's what he calls us to because he knows our souls need that and it should change how we look at people. For example, this year, 2024, we're gonna have an election, right? The year of unity. And we're gonna have Democrats and Republicans eating each other alive, aren't we? So I asked last Sunday, or maybe this Sunday before, I ask you to consider, is your political stance more important than somebody else's faith? Is your political opinion more important than somebody getting to know Christ? Is your attitude, is your anger and bitterness, is that more important if you're a follower of Jesus? Is that more important than somebody else's relationship with God? Because during COVID, and again, I said it a couple weeks ago, and I think again last Sunday, there were so many people that have left Christianity, not necessarily their faith, but they want nothing to do with church anymore because of politics. And that's pretty clear. Like, there's lots of surveys that have been done all across the country over the last four years, and so many people have de-churched because of politics and because Christians in the church and the angry, hateful things that they said online and the things that they shared and the things they said in the grocery store and at work. Like, we can't hide hate. In the Imago day, it's going to form our opinions about that. Or how about another touchy one? What if somebody is gay or trans or straight? Well, are they are they abominations? Are they made in the image of God? Are they people that also need the mercy and grace of Christ, just like we do? Right? These are like the ones that are that you have to think about these things. This this forms how we approach these things. Or whatever race you want to divide, right? We are so divided by racial issues. Like, whatever race you want into, right? If you live on the West Coast, it's going to be like more, there's going to be Asian tension out there, as we saw, like all these crimes happening, all these things happening. You go in the South, you go in New England, wherever you go, you can divide people by their ethnicity. And we've done that for a long time, right? Italian, Irish, Jew, white, black, American, Native Americans. It's like, it doesn't matter, right? We divide ourselves on this stuff. But the Imago Dei says, no, we are all equally made the image of God, and they should form how we live our lives. So that's so foundational, but the Imago Dei, this idea is something that we should do two things with. We should reflect it, and we should respect it. This does not mean we don't stand up for what's right. It does not mean we don't speak truth. It just means there's a way that we're going to govern ourselves as we do that. As we do that, right? We're not going to do it with hate and sarcasm. We're going to do it differently, because the good news of Jesus Christ demands it. Because here's what the good news of Jesus Christ reminds us, is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In some way, right now, everybody sitting in this room or watching knows that in your life somewhere, you're a disaster. There's something in your life that's just like, man, I'm a mess. I can't seem to get over this. I keep making the same mistakes. I've got this brokenness or this woundedness from my past. Whatever it is, that's the cool thing about this right here, is we realize that, man, at the end of the day, we're all on the same playing field. Right, we're all starting from the same place. We're all we all got some brokenness, and we need Jesus Christ to be able to fully live out and realize this imago day, this image of God. But it's not easy, it's not easy, right? So, that's a huge thing that came out of Genesis chapter 2. And then we get to this one, Sabbath rest. So, that's day seven, six days of creation. Still in uh, chapter, end of chapter one, there you have Sabbath rest. Now, God didn't take a rest on day seven because he was like, oh my gosh, that was just so much. The universe is exhausting. It wasn't like that, right? It was because he's setting a model for us. He's setting a model for us. Because here's what I know about myself and a lot of other people is we don't rest well. And we want to communicate that we don't rest well. Because ask anybody today, just later on, not after the sermon because they're going to lie because they heard what I had to say right now, but say, hey man, how you, how's it going lately? And what are most people gonna say? Busy, busy. Everybody is always so busy. What are we doing that's keeping us so busy, right? And it's like there are a lot of things that keep us busy, particularly when you're in a different stage of life. If you got little kids, your life is kinda busy, right? But here's also what I know. When we have time to rest, what do we do? We binge watch Netflix. We endlessly scroll on whatever app it is you wanna do, right? Amazon, Pinterest, socials, YouTube, right? And so we do this. And so instead of being like, oh man, you know what? Wow, I'm going to go to bed at 9 o'clock tonight. We stay up and we watch the news. We binge watch other things until like 11 o'clock or midnight. We wake up the next morning all tired and exhausted because we did things that weren't good for our brains anyway with the blue light. And it's like, why am I so tired? Why am I so busy? And it's like, Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. God didn't need a break. Just like Jesus said, the Sabbath was given for us you need to take a break. And I've admitted to you several times, I don't do this well. I get so antsy sometimes taking a break because I feel guilty. And have since I was in college, if I just sit around, or if I'm just like being lazy, gosh, I feel so guilty. And I can remember friends asking me in college, hey, you want to go ski? Hey, you want to go do this? Hey, you want to do that? Oh, no, I can't. I got I to gotta do stuff. And I'd always be thinking about my like things I had to do, like, like things around the house, or just schoolwork, or whatever it was, And even recently, it's like, I've been really like, Lord, help me to do this. So I've been trying to be a yes man. So Bear like, wants to do something every five minutes. He wants my son, Bear wants to do something with me every five minutes. And a lot of times when he asks me, like, my first thought is like, well, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, and like lately I've been like, no, I don't have to do that. You know what I have to do is I need to invest in my son and go outside and play in the snow with him. So I went out, actually with Caleb, right? Uh, And so we went out and I was like, hey Caleb, let's go. And we went trudging through the woods, briars and all, like, and I had my hatchet. and We're out there, like, just making our way through. And it was like we had this whole big adventure. Why? Because I realized that that's what my soul needed. I didn't need to do more stuff. I just needed to go have fun with my son and bring along the neighbor, you know, and hang out with him. And then last Monday, a friend of mine, hey, do you want to go skiing? Normally, immediately, I was like, well, I've got to do this, 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 and this. I can't do this. You know, I don't have time to take blah, 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 blah. And I just texted back. I was like, yes, let's do it. I didn't have any equipment. I wasn't ready at all in any way, shape, or form. But I was like, I know I need this because I need Sabbath rest. And i got to stop making myself so busy. Making time to do these things, having relationships, investing with people, just resting, turning off my phone. Man, this next slide. What if we reoriented our life around Sabbath rest like our body and soul were designed for it? As if our creators need to do this. Wow, how different would that be if we did that? So that was a big one we talked about. And then we talk about sex and marriage, which is always fun to talk about, right? And so sex and marriage is something that we see out of Genesis chapter 2. And this important institution is something that we really have train wrecked, right? Today, for example, hot button issue, gay marriage. Oh, they're they're wrecking the institution of marriage. No, in the 60s, with no-fault divorce and the sexual revolution, heterosexuals ruined marriage, right? We made it really easy and convenient to get out of marriage. And so the rate since then, within Christianity and without, the divorce rate has consistently been the same. So what that says to me is that even as Christians, we don't really understand the sanctity of marriage. We don't really understand. We want to put it on billboards. or oh, it's between a man and a woman. It's like, okay, but it's more than that. It's this deeply committed, unbelievably difficult, and sacrificial thing that is a sacred thing that mirrors Jesus Christ and His church. It mirrors God's love for the people that He's created. That's literally what Scripture says. And so that's what it's supposed to be. And so it's hard, it's really, really hard to be in that kind of relationship. But what if both people in the marriage, and this is what we see in the New Testament, what if both people in that marriage said, I want to be Christ-like. I want to live out Philippians chapter 2 in this marriage. That I'm going to put your interests ahead of mine. And that's really tough to do, especially when you're arguing. Right in the moment of arguing, you don't care what they want or what they think or what they say. And so here's a pause on that. And I did this when we covered this last time, but I want to make sure I say it again. This does not mean that if you are in a toxic and dangerous relationship, that you need to stay in that relationship. Because here's what I know. I know people have told other women, especially because it seems to happen more often to women, they've told women, no, to honor God, you need to stay in this literally physically abusive relationship or this sexually abusive relationship, or this mentally abusive relationship. That person has broken their marriage covenant with that person, and it's no longer safe for them to be there. So I always say, no, you need to get out of that situation. I won't always just rush to divorce, because maybe there's something can do. I don't want to discount what God can do. But at the same time, I've counseled plenty of people to say, no, no, you need to get yourself out of that situation right now. This is not safe. And they're breaking their marriage covenant and being a complete jerk. Right? And dangerous or whatever the thing is. And so I, I want to make sure that you understand that there, there definitely is cause for separation and even cause for divorce in Scripture. But what I am saying is that we need to, each one of us, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, to understand that sacred relationship of marriage. And it's worth fighting for, for both people. And when you do, you have something beautiful and something powerful. And it's a gift that God has given us for sure. So then after that, what kind of leads into that, these issues, is the fall of Adam and Eve, right? The very first married couple. And they choose to reject God, and that wrecks their relationship with God, and it wrecks their relationship with others. This is the explanation. The fall is the explanation for what's going on in the world. When we watch the news, and it seems like total chaos out there, and it seems like people are just committing crimes all over the place, and it seems like wars and rumors of wars, and everything happening, right? And it's just the selfishness that's out there. It's like, well, because that's in each one of us. And if it's turned loose, if it's given freedom as it is in our society, right? Do what makes you happy. Well, where does that take us? It's like, well, the fall is the explanation. And so it's their rejection of God, and it's the decision to do what they wanted. And to be clear, it says in the New Testament, Eve was deceived, but Adam was guilty. So again, here's the connection. The beauty of the creation event in Eden and the relationship that they had, then they reject God, and then everything spirals after that. And so... What happened, though, is that Adam was told what to do, clearly didn't pass that note along to Eve, who was then deceived, but Adam is responsible. Now, the connection to the New Testament is that Jesus is called the second Adam. He's going to be the one, the son, that doesn't screw up. He's going to be the one that does what he's supposed to do and lives righteously. Like So there's a cool mirror between Jesus and Adam in the Old Testament. But what I see here, and I want you to take this with you, because this is personal, is this see one take model. We see this happen right away with the first couple, and we see this all across the Bible, and we see this all across the world today, and you probably see it in your own life. It's, I see something, and that may be a sin. It may be harmful or toxic for me, but I want it, and so I don't really care about the consequences. I'm going to take it. And this man, think about how this gets you in trouble. Think about purchases that you've made. You see it. You know you shouldn't, but you really want it, and what do you do? You convince yourself, and so you buy it. Because, man, on Amazon and Walmart and all these other apps, don't they make it so easy? All you have to do is push that bright little button, and they'll send it to your house, sometimes like the same day, right? Or anything else. I mean, apply that to anything else, and it's like, man, the trouble that that gets people in, and this is the first time you see it with Adam and Eve. But here's what I love. I want to put Genesis 3 before you. So Genesis 3.15 is what's called... The Proto-Evangelium. This is a historic Christian view of this verse. And the Proto-Evangelium is a Greek phrase that means the first Proto-Gospel. So right here you see the first introduction of the answer. So God's like, you guys have screwed this all up. I have this beautiful intent. Here's how the Bible fits together. I have the beautiful intent of Genesis 1 and 2. You chose to reject me, but in the midst of that rejection, I'm going to continue to chase after you. And then the whole rest of the Bible is God chasing after people. And so in Genesis 3.15, this is what he says Satan. This is part of his curse. He says, I will put hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. So there's going to be this tension, this division, this warring between humanity and Satan, good and evil, so to speak, is going to be going down. But then he makes it more specific, and he says, He will strike your head, which is a fatal blow, and you will strike his heel. So now we're looking at the crucifixion. We're looking at the victory of the cross here. So for 1,500 years, people wondered what this verse was all about. Right? Moses wrote this, 1,500 B.C., and for 1,500 years, they had to wonder, well, what's this all about? Where's this going? And it would be Jesus Christ that would come and fulfill this verse right here. So this is God loving us in the midst of our stupidity. And then you get into Genesis part 2. 4 through 11 is the plane going down hardcore. It's the fallout of everything. So again, just to remind us, you have Genesis 1 and 2, the beauty and the perfection of relationship of people and the relationship with God. Then you have this journey of Adam and Eve wanting what they want and seeing it and taking it and the fall. And it's like this is something common to all of us, sin. Then you have God saying, all right, I'm going to let these consequences play out. And they do in grand, horrible fashion. And this is most of the stories that we know. It's the flood. It's Tower of Babel. It's all these things. And it's just, man, like, us not being able to save ourselves. But God made this promise in Genesis chapter 3. So for all of these chapters, some of the people that we meet in this portion, we ask the, it was a question of consequence. Because in these chapters here, is how can thinking about the consequences of your sin impact your day-to-day choices? Because that's what we see from 4 to 11. That's what we see is just choices and little choices. And what I learned from this section is, and what I see is that you are the sum of all these little choices that you make every single day, right? Think about if you're a grateful person every single day. You make it a habit to be grateful somehow. You start a journal. You start praying about it. Over time, you're going to be a more grateful person, right? But if you're always looking at what you don't have, if you're always angry, you're building a pattern and becoming a an ungrateful, bitter, angry person. It just goes in whatever direction that you're feeding, right? And this is the pattern that you see in all these chapters. These, these people just going down this road, and God's saying, stop that, stop that, stop that, and they just keep doing it. And so again, it's like, how, how am I as a husband? How am I as a dad? How am I as a neighbor? Like, how am I in all these things, and these, like, little things that we do, who am I becoming? And as a result, what's happening to the people around me, right? And so that's, that's something, man, it just keeps screaming in these chapters. And then, the people that we meet that are doing this are all famous people. All famous stories, except maybe the Nephilim. I threw that in there because Pastor Tim preached on it, and I felt bad for him. But he did a good job. <laughs> he did a good job on that one because that's like a mysterious group of people there. But you have all these people, though, Cain and Abel, and Nephilim, Noah and the flood, Tower of Babel. They're all pride issues. Even Abram and Sarai. They're all pride issues that when they get in trouble, it's because of pride. Like the Tower of Babel, for example. A lot of us know that story just as like that's when God confused the languages. Why did he get so angry, though? Well, because they built this tower. Historically, it would have been called probably a ziggurat. And at the top of a tower, like a ziggurat, there's a little room for worship. So they didn't just build a tall tower. They built a room literally with the purpose of saying, we're going to build a house of worship, God, in your backyard, and we're going to worship however we want to. Like that, like talk about like just poking God in the face, right? Like we're going to come up to you and we're going to worship, right? How we want to in this little room of worship. So that's where the issue, that's where the, the anger from God came from. It wasn't just they were trying to build cool stuff. It was the heart behind it, just like Adam and Eve. How can we sidestep God? Pride got him in trouble. So again, there's just, man, there's these issues of pride that are so good for us to think about, because pride is a sneaky one. And that's what happens in those early chapters, 1-11. through 11 beauty of creation, the intent of the relationship, the perfection of it all, Eden, all that cool stuff, the fall of chapter 3, the fallout after everything, the fallout in those chapters. And that's what Moses uses to set us up for chapter 12. That's why we need Abraham. That's why chapter 12 is such a pivotal point that affects the whole rest of the Bible. Because here's the promise that's made to Abraham. Things are out of control. The world is nuts. It's upside down. And here's what God says to Abraham right in the midst of it. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Said, wow, that's cool. And then he goes on. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Later in the New Testament, they would make it clear that this promise, why would the earth be blessed through him? Well, it was because of the seed of Abraham. It would be the nation of Israel, specifically the tribe of Judah. It would be Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It would be God making a promise in Genesis 3.15, the whole, he he will strike your head, you will strike his heel, making that promise and then saying to Abraham, I'm going to make this promise happen through you and I'm going to protect the promise. That's the whole blessing and the cursing thing. I'm going to protect promise i'm going to protect the nation of israel because think about that the nation of israel has been persecuted forever like literally since the beginning in scripture always persecuted doing dumb stuff getting persecuted doing dumb stuff getting persecuted the nation of israel today still getting persecuted right you think the holocaust you think i mean my goodness these people have been through so much and yet they continue to exist i mean this is 2000 bc so for 4,000 years, the nation of Israel has existed through constant persecution and doing dumb stuff, and God blessing them, and God protecting the promise that he's going to make right here to Abraham. And the thing about Israel today is it's not even like spiritual Israel. The nation of Israel today, a lot of the people there are just secular atheists, right? They're they're ethnic Jews, but they don't really believe. You talk to people that go over there, and they're like, wow, yeah, there's a lot of just atheists over there. They don't want anything to do with God, and yet God continues to work through them. God still has a plan for the nation of Israel, and I don't know what that looks like, but he still has a plan for them. And so this is God protecting the promise, and it's why we need Jesus. It's the answer to Genesis 3. So that's how the early chapters of Genesis fit together. This is what I intended. This is what you did. Train wreck chapters 4 through 11. This is the promise I'm going to make because I'm going to keep that promise to Genesis 3, and this is what it's going to look like. Jesus Christ the Messiah coming to promise to bless the whole world. That's who Jesus Christ is. So again, this is like the story building and God pulling the plane up from disaster because he's going to make and keep this promise to Abraham. So that is our somewhat quick overview of chapters 1 through 11. But I did that because we're going to be in 12 and I want want you to understand clearly, well, why Abraham? Because again, Genesis 3, the promise that was made, he's going to do it through you, Abraham, or Abram at the point where we need him, right? And so here's what I'd love you to think about for this, as we get now into part three, starting next Sunday. So what is God showing you about yourself in Genesis? What is He showing you about the world around you, and the issues and the problems that you see in people? And what is He showing you about your relationship to Him? What does it reveal about the nature of His care and concern for you as a human being that He made in His image? Right? These are really foundational, life-changing things that Honestly, it's going to bring you peace. It's going to make you a lot less angry. It's going to make you a lot less fearful. It's going to help you understand that you're in the care of the Elohim, that Barah, the universe, right? Like, this is who we put our trust in. And that's what Genesis is saying to us, all right? So that's where we are. That's our overview. Let me pray on that. So, Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how much you reveal about yourself. God, would you help us? God, would you help us to lead into this stuff? Lord, not to just see the stories or trivia, God, but that the creator of the universe is saying something to us about himself. That you care that much about us, God. And I don't know where that lands with everybody in here. But I'm just praying, Jesus, that you would do the work through your Holy Spirit that only you can do. Because you told us, Jesus, it would be your spirit that would do the, the unthinkable, that would do the impossible, Lord. You created the universe, Lord, and I'm just asking that same power to speak to us, to heal us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to convict us, whatever the need is, do the work on only you can do, Jesus. And I pray that in your name, Lord. Amen. All right. Love you all. It's great seeing you this week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.